Today's podcast is sponsored by Free Trade, the UK commission-free investing platform. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. In recent weeks, a number of American and European banks have seen their share prices tumble. As losses on property loans mount, they've been forced to set aside extra cash and slash dividends. I want to know if the commercial real estate problem is contained, or if this is just the tip of the iceberg. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is negative equity? Alright, let's get into it. So you might have seen in the press that some banks have started struggling again. And in particular, New York Community Bancorp saw its share price fall more than 50%. So I thought this week, what would be really good is if we talked to an investor in US banks. And I've got one here on the phone. His name's Roman. Hello, Roman. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so how are you feeling? Pretty bad. No, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Look, I mean, the exposure I've got is to a kind of sector ETF, which has exposure to mostly it's the large US banks with very strong balance sheets. And I think their exposure is fairly limited. But of course, the reason why they went cheap and why I bought them in the first place is they had a kind of contagion risk priced into them, which I didn't think was warranted. But the Fed stepped in and everything seemed to be fine. Well, everything's not fine. So you bought US banks, well, roughly a year ago after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and a couple of other banks in the US, and you thought prices were depressed, which they were depressed, and they still are. So just looking at the prices we make this video, I bought around March of 2023, and it's up now about 19%, the index I bought, which is the XUFB ETF. That's not a recommendation, by the way. And it has fallen a bit, not a lot yet. And I think probably the contagion risk will be priced differently this time around, but who knows? Yeah, the broad banking sector's actually done okay, hasn't it? We've seen some of the big banks post big profits as the economic recovery has taken hold. But what hasn't done so well is those smaller regional banks in the US. And there's a specific ETF, isn't there, that tracks those small banks, and that's been pretty beaten up this year. Now, there is a regional banking ETF called KRE. This is US listed, so you can't buy it in the UK. But it is a useful barometer for these regional banks, which have the probably the largest exposure to commercial real estate, but also they don't have such strong balance sheets as the systemically important banks like JP Morgan and Bank of America, say. And that one's fallen about 26% from its peak before the banking crisis really hit. And it's fallen again recently although there was a bit of a recovery. I think this time around, it's kind of different from the banking crisis in March 2023, because then it was more about the fall in the value of US treasuries, whereas now everyone's really focused on their exposure to commercial real estate loans. And this is a leveraged instrument, usually. There will be some element of borrowing, which obviously if that increases the cost of the financing, then that's going to be a problem. So what is the issue here around commercial real estate? Why is it struggling so badly right now? So clearly, interest rates matter. That's one of the problems. And, you know, that's direct and indirect. By indirect, I mean that if you're buying commercial real estate, it's usually an income generating asset. So if you're getting 5% on treasuries, and this thing's paying you 6%, well, suddenly it's not as attractive as it was when interest rates were 0%. So immediately, that kind of comparative advantage of owning commercial real estate becomes much smaller. 
And then you think, well, why would I expose myself to this risk given the smaller income relative to something which is risk-free? And also owners of those buildings who have borrowed to buy them, eventually they have to refinance those loans at higher interest rates and do the rents cover the interest payments? So I read on Bloomberg that more than $1 trillion worth of commercial mortgages come due in the next two years. And that's going to be a huge problem, potentially. Now, rates may fall a bit between now and then, but I don't think they're going to fall a lot. It really depends on the perceived credit risk as well, because if it is looking like that's a troubled sector, there'll probably be some additional risk premium which the banks will add to the price of the loan, to the rate that they're charging. You say is it a troubled sector, and I think it's divided, isn't it? So commercial real estate is a big bucket. And what's really struggling are offices, and you could say retail as well, but offices is the one that everyone really focuses on. And around 25% of that one trillion that needs to be refinanced is loans to offices and retail segments. And just anecdotally, I uh, went into London one day, and it was a Friday, And usually the tube would be packed because it was a kind of early train. But this time it really wasn't. And I thought, what on earth is going on? Has something happened? And then I realised that now people don't travel in on a Friday. It has completely changed. Yeah, I mean, vacancy rates, I was looking at it for the US, and it's probably the worst on record right now. So according to Moody's analytics, more office space is empty in the US than at any point since records began in 1979. Don't know why they only started counting then, but they did. (laughs) And the national vacancy rate for offices is sitting at almost 20%, which is up from around 16% before the pandemic. And that's just the official stats, right? That's just, you know, how many buildings have actually got a tenant. If you look at private data into how many people are actually going into the office, in the big cities, it seems to be way down on pre-pandemic levels. So there's a company called Castle, with a K, which makes a lot of the security systems and entry badges and stuff for office buildings. And they track this and publish some really interesting data. And they show that in major US cities right now, the number of workers actually going into the office is around 50% of pre-COVID levels. And there's a massive variation within the week, like you said, Romin. So on Wednesdays, it might be as high as 60 or 70%, but on Mondays and Fridays, as low as 30%. That was the best data I found for this episode. (laughs) That's very good. But I think it kind of makes sense because I remember thinking at the time, you know, why on earth am I going to the office? If I'm not seeing clients today, then there's just no point. I can work from home just as effectively. And it's also interesting that Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor at the latest press conference, was talking about working from home. And there was a whole chat about productivity because Jerome Powell had talked about it during his press conference the day before where he said, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference to productivity. So they asked Bailey and he said, well, I'm rather old fashioned because I do come into the office every day. (laughs) Sounds about right. My highlight of every episode is your Andrew Bailey impression. (laughs) (laughs) Dial up the plum. I've actually got a sausage roll in my mouth. And you're struggling to stay awake. But these are the two key problems, aren't they? High interest rates and the work-from-home phenomenon, if you want to see that as a problem. It basically means there's less demand for offices, and what happens when there's less demand? Prices fall. But how much have they fallen? No one really knows. And this is a problem with something which is as illiquid as commercial real estate. You only know the price when you sell it, and it doesn't get sold very often. 
That's the problem with volatility laundering. It's unobservable. So what I'm guessing is that these commercial real estate funds are hoping, they've got their fingers crossed, that things are going to recover before these things are priced again. I noticed that transaction volumes are way down. Like people just haven't been selling office buildings so much. So no one really knows. Like you say, real estate funds are slow to mark to market notoriously. And I think the banks as well don't really want to write down the value of the loans and sort of hold them at pennies on the dollar on their balance sheet. I did see that at the end of last year, there was a big sale of the Aon Center, which is one of the biggest towers in Los Angeles. And that sold for just under $150 million, which was around 45% less than the previous purchase price from 2014. So if that's indicative of the broad market for the office space, good God, we're in for a reckoning. But I think it's a little bit like Schrodinger's cat. Maybe we should call it Schrodinger's flat. If you don't observe it, you don't know that <laughs> it's actually... the name of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to get any sensible estimates about how big the drop has been in the value of commercial real estate. I saw one estimate from the IMF a couple of weeks ago, which said that as a sector as a whole, it reckons it might be down around 11%. But that's going to be much, much worse in office buildings, obviously. And I guess we should also talk about the sectors where it won't have collapsed. For example, data centres, things like towers for 5G networks and 4G networks, all of that can be funded via things like real estate investment trusts. So if you can get a sectoral breakdown of the REITs which you're buying, if that's how you get exposure, then you can check whether office space is part of that exposure which you've got. And if you're about to buy one, obviously, maybe you want to avoid it right now. Yeah, offices apparently only make up around 15% of the commercial real estate sector. There is a monster REIT ETF, which is called REIT. So it's R-W-E-T, it's from iShares, and it's a global REIT. And if you look at the sector composition there, it's mostly industrial REITs, which make up the index, but also the ETF. Multifamily residential REITs are also pretty big, about 10%. Data center REITs, 9%. Healthcare REITs, 8%. And office REITs only make up about 8%. Yeah, so as a proportion of the whole sector, it's not huge. But what is interesting is the exposure to those office buildings can be concentrated in a few banks. So what we saw over the last couple of weeks is New York Community Bancorp, NYCB as it's known, posted its Q4 earnings and announced quite a big loss. So over $250 million of loss. And that was due to bad property loans. So it had to set aside a lot of money in anticipation of more and more loans going bad. And in the aftermath of the earnings report, its share price fell more than 50%. And it's interesting that NYCB was seen as a kind of safe bet because of the loans it had made, because it was to multifamily buildings. And of course, in the past, that was a sector which held up really well, even if interest rates were rising. However, this time around, it seems like that's not the case because of a change in laws in the United States. Well, specifically in New York. So this issue around multifamily buildings seems to be quite specific to this bank, where in 2019, New York State passed new regulations which limited landlords' ability to raise rents. Obviously, that's going to have an impact on the value of properties if rents can't keep up with inflation. And so they took a big hit there. But also they're exposed to commercial real estate and office buildings. And I saw that they took $185 million of losses on just two property loans. That's the thing with this sector. It could just be one or two buildings that go bad, but they are massive on the balance sheet. So it is quite 
lumpy risk. That's the problem. You can't get good diversification unless you've got huge assets, which some of these funds can have, but others like single banks, like NYCB, clearly haven't got the capital to have that diversification. But like you say, NYCB was seen as a safe bank. In fact, during the last mini banking crisis back in March of last year, it was the bank that acquired Signature Bank's assets when that started to fail. So it was one of the key banks in the bailout. But interestingly, that acquisition, as well as an acquisition of a retail bank called Flagstar, those two things combined pushed its assets above $100 billion, making it what's known as a Category 4 bank. And that comes with stricter capital requirements. And some people have been saying, oh, this has kind of been the worst of both worlds for it. It has to set aside more regulatory capital at the same time as more of its loans are going bad. Yeah, that is awful, isn't it, for the bank itself? It has been very unfortunate. But I mean, you could say that they weren't careful enough with their risk control. Well, you could say that. And I noticed that their chief risk officer and their chief audit officer both left the company after the uh, results were announced. (laughs) That would look great on your LinkedIn profile, wouldn't it? Risk officer for NYCB. (laughs) Does that set your alarm bells ringing when the risk officer and the audit officer both leave? In a word, yes. Certainly set Moody's alarm bells ringing, didn't it? Yeah, so they have downgraded it to junk, unfortunately. They cited high governance risks and warned that the bank lacked sufficient reserves to cover bad loans, even after the new $552 million provision. Yeah, they're basically saying a lot of your customers aren't going to be able to pay back the money and you're underestimating the risk. So clearly not a great endorsement of their risk management. But what's different now versus the banking crisis of last year is that customers, like depositors, don't seem to have started pulling their money from the bank. And this is why I think it's slightly different this time around, because last time we saw that the Fed stepped in pretty fast and said, look, you can use our balance sheet, you can take out these loans. So this was called the Bank Term Funding Programme, or BTFP, and you could get a loan of up to one year in length if you're a bank or a savings association or a credit union. And all you had to do was pledge your US treasuries or agency debt or MBS as qualifying assets. That would be your collateral. So you hand over these treasuries temporarily and you get a wadge of cash in return. So if people are flooding out of your bank, you can pay them on the way out. So that was called a BTFP. So now we're in the post-BTFP regime, I think, when people think, well, the Fed's just going to step in again and save the day. But it hasn't needed to yet because customers haven't triggered a bank run. And that's probably because we're post-BTFP, I think. Okay, so it's kind of a good chicken and egg thing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think people are aware of it? Do you think they think, well, the Fed's going to just bail it out because they did before? Well, I don't know. I'm not in America, but it must have reassured people when you know, even uninsured depositors, so people with more than $250,000 in their account were, you know, made whole when Silicon Valley Bank went under. And maybe that's why we haven't seen contagion so far, because that's probably the best route for contagion is going to be via people moving their money out of the bank's capital flight and deposit flight. I did see that the FT noted that, yes, there hasn't been deposit flight, but NYCB does look like it's having to offer higher interest rates to its customers. So maybe it's having to pay them to stay. (laughs) So they're reducing their margins even more. 
Today's podcast is sponsored by Free Trade, the UK commission-free investing platform. Free Trade are offering our podcast listeners a free bonus share worth between £10 and £100. All you need to do is to join the platform and fund your account with at least £50. The free share will be added to your account within 7 to 10 days of funding. Here's what the Free Trade platform offers you. Over 6,100 UK, US and European stocks, ETFs and trusts at your fingertips. Commission-free trades to keep your profits. Interest on uninvested cash, recurring orders and an easy-to-use app. Ready to claim your free share? Head over to freetrade.io slash freesharepensioncraft to benefit from this offer. When you invest, your capital is at risk. The probability is weighted, so more expensive shares will be rarer. Terms and conditions and other charges may apply. I mean, one thing I wondered about was when the Fed stepped in last time, the justification was that the problems at these banks were basically liquidity problems, not solvency problems. It was the fact that customers were pulling their money and they couldn't get money fast enough to pay them off without the Fed bailing them out. Whereas this time, if commercial real estate goes bad, the concern with a bank like NYCB is that it could be insolvent, right? If enough of its borrowers default on their debts, then it might go bankrupt. Yeah, I mean, if you wipe out the equity, that's how it happens. If the value of your assets falls enough, then your loss-absorbing equity on your balance sheet may not be sufficient to absorb the loss. That's kind of what Moody's was saying, right? Yeah. And it's interesting that Fitch didn't downgrade them to junk. So maybe there's still hope. It's possible we could get through this crisis and the value of these loans will recover. Fitch did cut the rating just to one notch above junk, just to give them that little (laughs) bit of hope, I think. (laughs) I mean, when you take a step back and look at the broad picture here, The main takeaway to me is that it's not pain that's evenly shared across the banking system. So commercial real estate lending in the US accounts for around 29% of the assets at the small banks, of which NYCB is one. Whereas at the big banks, the giants, only 6.5% of their assets are tied to commercial real estate. So if this sector goes bad, it's the small banks which look like they're going to suffer far more. And I guess a lot of this lending is local. If you're a local bank, then you'll be approached to produce these loans for these commercial real estate projects. And that's probably why they have this concentrated exposure. That's the thing about the US banking system, I think, which differentiates it from the UK and much of the rest of the world, is there is this big, vast network of local banks, small regional banks. Yeah, there are still over 5,000 US banks So it's a very different system to the UK, which is not so fragmented. We just tend to have a handful of quite large banks with a few tiny regional banks, maybe things like building societies, for example. So yeah, it's definitely the smaller regional banks that are exposed in the US. But how soon could they get in trouble? Is this going to be a slow rolling crisis that can be contained? Well, there is a nice paper about this called Monetary Tightening, Commercial Real Estate Distress and US Bank Fragility. And this was published at the end of 2023. And they've got lots of great data on this commercial real estate sector. And one of the things which they've got is the maturity structure of the outstanding loans. Now, often if you hear about debt crises, people will talk about a maturity wall where many of the banks are focused in one year where everybody has to refinance at the same time. 
And what's interesting is that 2024 is looking like quite a peak for CRE loans. So about 16%, I'd say, of the CRE loans, which are outstanding currently, are going to have to be financed this year. And then it falls quite sharply to 2025 and beyond. So I think that's going to be a problem unless the Fed does something to get those costs down. It's an interesting paper, and it comes from the National Bureau of Economic Research, so it's probably quite trustworthy. The stat that jumped out to me was that they looked at the loan-level data, and they estimate that around 14% of all CRE loans will be in negative equity as we speak. But when you talk about offices, they reckon 44% of office loans are currently negative equity. So that is pretty worrying. And if you actually look at the default rates, the delinquency rates, as they're called, when they stop repaying the repayments on the loan, in December of 2022, that was only 1.6% for office CRE. And as of November 2023, it's over 6%. So more than a tripling of the delinquency rate. So it is starting to pick up in that sector. Whereas if you compare that with lodging, retail and industrial, the rates there really haven't picked up for delinquencies. The other one where it has picked up a lot is multifamily. So these are things like flats, condos. That's doubled from 2% to over 4% over the last year. So those are the real troubled sectors, I think, at the moment. And they estimate that commercial real estate distress might mean that anywhere from, and I quote, dozens to over 300 small regional banks are at risk of insolvency. So that is a big deal. And that is Fed territory. And I did see that Jerome Powell talked about this very thing in his interview with 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago. And it was unusual for him to do these big, long sit-down interviews. Yeah, he did it for a reason. So firstly, I think he wasn't saying it's a massive problem which they can't deal with. It's not like the GFC. We looked at the larger banks' balance sheets, he said, and it appears to be a manageable problem. There's some smaller and regional banks that have concentrated exposures in these areas that are challenged. He's stealing our lines again. And it's true that this has been a kind of slow train wreck, hasn't it? Everyone saw it coming, and people said it would cause a huge crisis, which in a sense stops it from happening. Well, because the Fed's ready to step in if needed. Oh yeah, I mean, there would have been discussions about this, and there's going to be a folder somewhere with the plan. I mean, he said, and I quote, it feels like a problem we'll be working on for years. It's a sizable problem. It doesn't appear to have the makings of the kind of crisis that we've seen sometimes in the past, for example, with the global financial crisis. I don't think there's much risk of a repeat of 2008. Well, it's famous last words, isn't it? <laughs> From the Fed chair to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that Michael Fish interview just before the storm. You remember the yeah, one in... The hurricane. Yeah. And the last point Powell made is, there will be some banks that have to be closed or merged out of existence because of this. That'll be smaller banks, I suspect, for the most part. You know, these are losses. It's a secular change in the use of downtown real estate. And the result will be losses for the owners and for the lenders. But it should be manageable. One of the things that's quite interesting about this potential crisis is that though everyone's focused on US commercial real estate, the contagion risk is not limited to US banks. So there are some direct exposures from some European banks who've made loans in the United States. For example, Deutsche Fund, Briefer Bank, 
which is based in Germany, that specialises in commercial real estate and public sector financing. And some of that bank's 81 bonds, so these are cocoa bonds, we've done a whole episode about those, which I'm very keen on. So that's fallen in value to 40 cents on the euro, so clearly in distressed territory. And that's pricing in a pretty high probability of a default, I think. Probably too high, but don't quote me on that. But it's also the fact that investors are a little bit sceptical of these 81 cocoa bonds nowadays, right? After what happened at Credit Suisse. Yeah, we don't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that the bank increased its loan loss provisions to 210 million euros and cited persistent weakness of the real estate markets. And in fact, it described the current situation as the greatest real estate crisis since the global financial crisis. Which I guess it kind of is by default, because we haven't had one in the previous 15 years. (laughs) But there are other banks who've just batten the hatches. For example, Deutsche Bank has increased its provisions for loan losses in the US, and specifically for the commercial real estate sector in the US, by four times. So it is worried. And it is setting aside capital for those losses, if they do happen. And it's not even just contained to Europe. So I saw Aozora Bank in Japan recorded its first loss in 15 years because it had to raise its provisions against US commercial property loans and its stock fell more than 30%. So if you're talking about contagion risks around the world, the epicenter might be in US commercial real estate. But like in the global financial crisis, these things can spread. And this is just the direct exposure we're talking about here. And again, you don't know what the exposures are usually until something bad happens. So if this does get worse, at least we'll have a little taste of where the exposures lie right now. I remember you telling me that obviously you worked in investment banking in the run up to the global financial crisis in like 2007. And you told me that the credit derivatives desk kind of saw it coming and got really worried. But meanwhile, the equities desk was completely oblivious. Stock prices were going up. It had no idea of what was coming. Could this kind of thing be happening behind the scenes right now? Is there some desk in a bank somewhere with loads of worried nerds going, have you seen these office loans? (laughs) Meanwhile, the stock market's hitting all-time highs. But that's always the way it is. Equities are always optimistic. They always have a beaming face while the rest of the world burns until it becomes absolutely obvious that it's going to affect equities as well. But I think in this case, it's not as bad because of the backstop from the Fed and because people did see this one coming. Whereas with the global financial crisis, weirdly, it was just a kind of blind spot. People didn't see the risks at all. And it's not just the Fed. The ECB is all over this. And they have told lenders in Europe that they are probably going to have to raise their capital requirements if they're exposed to US real estate. And I was a bit surprised that Germany's got such large exposure. I think it's got the largest exposure in Europe. France is almost as large. In fact, the two are kind of neck and neck at just under 300 billion euros. But there's a nice quote from the Bundesbank, the central bank in Germany, which said, the outstanding volume of loans granted by the German banking system to the US CRE market is comparatively small, but relatively concentrated at individual banks. So lumpy risk and... I guess markets don't fully know which ones those are, but you can kind of guess by the share prices. The concentration risk is a problem, isn't it? Because let's say, oh, it's all concentrated on one or two banks. But if those banks go under because of this risk, 
then other banks are exposed to those banks that have gone under. It's like a domino effect. You'd rather a lot of banks have a little bit of exposure than a few have a lot. And this is a reason for a central bank. This is originally why we had central banks, which is that it's kind of like a herd where they form a circle around the baby. <laughs> it's kind of like a herd of what? Elephants? I know elephants <laughs> do it as well. Do bison do it? Start again, Will. <laughs> <laughs> elephants do it. I've seen elephants protecting the young from lions. So it's, it's like that if you have a central bank. So is the central bank the adult elephants and the commercial banks are the baby elephants? Exactly. I mean, I think retail investors have sniffed that there's a potential problem here. So more than a billion euros a month is being pulled from real estate funds in Europe. Which is a problem because if money's flooding out, this is very illiquid in terms of being able to sell the assets to pay people as they leave the fund. So I suspect what we will see is gating of some of these open-ended funds. If it's structured as a closed-ended fund, it's not a problem. We'll just see the price of the fund fall. And the ECB warned that property funds do pose a risk to financial stability because they make up around 40% of commercial real estate markets in the Eurozone. So hot money flooding out of the sector and interest rates increasing combined with this kind of distress in the US, I think that makes up for a fairly bad combo. But your instinct is this isn't going to be a major problem. It's a tail risk. Yeah, definitely a tail risk. Big impact if it happens, but the probability of it happening is fairly low still. See you here in a year's time. Last year, Roman, you said... (laughs) (laughs) Your mate Jerome Powell said, there's no risk of a repeat of 2008. (laughs) Dum, dum, dum. (laughs) Now, if you're worried about tail risks like the commercial real estate market, but any other risks, then why not discuss it with other members of our community? Perhaps we'll put your mind at rest. Perhaps you'll reevaluate the risks. If you want to learn more about that, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is negative equity? You can tell from the name it's not good. If it's got the word negative in it, it's probably going to hurt you. But people who buy houses will be potentially in this situation because that's a leveraged investment. And it is about borrowing. So let's say that you're buying something worth 100000 You put in 10000 as a deposit, 10% of the total value. So 90% of it is a loan. Everything is absolutely fine as long as the value of the asset increases. If the value of the asset falls, however, so let's say it falls by 10,000, then suddenly your investment, which is 10,000, has been wiped out. But now what happens if it falls by another 10,000? Well, suddenly you've got a minus 10,000 value on your investment. And that means you've been wiped out. And if you sell the asset now, you'll be liable for that 10,000. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what I'm buying in London for £100,000. <laughs> Maybe a car parking space or a pothole. <laughs> but either way, <laughs> it's not good, is it? It's a situation that has happened. And generally it happens if you buy at the top of some kind of property bubble and then, yeah, the market falls after you've bought. Like us. Oh, really? You think that's going to happen? I thought you had a big deposit. Yeah, we did, actually. It wouldn't have wiped us out. But it has happened to some of my family. In the 90s, my cousin bought a property and that was in negative equity. So he couldn't sell it. Well, he could sell it, but he'd have taken a loss, which you never want to do, clearly. 
end up paying for the house in order to get rid of it. I think the bank has to approve the sale, don't they, if it's in negative equity, because they're going to come after you for the outstanding balance. Exactly. And so, you know, it's just awful feelings all around. So that is the risk with property. I think people never think about negative equity because they always assume that house prices will carry on increasing, but that's not always the case. Yeah, we've had crashes. And obviously, Japan had a massive crash where prices in many parts of Japan are still below where they were at the end of the 1980s. Imagine that, having negative equity for something like 30 years. It's a long time to try and sit tight, isn't it? And they haven't even had inflation to inflate away the real value of the debt. (laughs) They finally got it now, though. A little bit. But this whole issue of negative equity is what really worries me when I hear politicians coming out with the idea of like putting down 1% deposits or getting, you know, 99% mortgages. Because it doesn't take much fall in the value of a property to put you in, you know, massive losses. And then you've gummed up the housing market and bankrupted people, potentially. I mean, I get the temptation, right? You want to help people buy a house and you think, well, just lend them more money. But the risk is massive. Yeah, the government is kind of encouraging you to take more risk, which always seems a little bit questionable. There's a reason we have deposits. No, he said that commercial real estate's usually levered, and that's one of the problems. If they haven't taken enough equity in this project, then potentially they could suffer leveraged losses. So that's the double-edged sword with commercial real estate. Because it's levered, there's going to be this problem when funding costs increase, and those particular chickens have come home to roost. And I guess ultimately, if the borrower is underwater and they just you know, can't pay back the debt, they're going to hand back the keys to the office building and the bank's going to be stuck with it and trying to sell it for a big loss. Yeah, the unlevering process is never pretty and it's never clean. There are going to be some banks which go to the wall. It's just inevitable, I think. That's capitalism, baby. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.